You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Uh, just a reminder um, for those of you who were with us a few weeks ago for our missions conference, uh, need to see our eyeglass uh, donation uh, box going up, and uh, hopefully you're getting rid of the glasses you don't need and keeping the ones that you do need, um, because uh, it's kind of like the air mask. You know, you want to help other people, but you've got to first put on your own air mask, so for those of us that need to remember which ones we need. Uh, and then secondly, we did make the deadline last Sunday for our Faith Promise cards, but if you were out of town like I was last week, make sure you turn those in uh, tonight if at all possible, and that helps us budget. Our fiscal year, typically we take on new missionaries in our July business meeting. We'd love to strengthen some of our missionary partnerships as well as take on a few new ones, and we would have had, uh, for example, Brother Southard going to South Africa. We'd love to take him on if we could. Uh, we definitely would like to consider medical mission outreach. We, for years, have been wanting to partner with them, but that doesn't just happen. You know, I mentioned to you, I think a few weeks ago, we talked about, well, the church ought to do this, and the church will fund this, and the church, you don't do know who the church is, right? And it's not just me, and it's not just this vague concept, okay? It's us. It's, it's me, but it's also you. And so I hope that you'll turn in that card. Whether you're used to faith, promise, missions or not, it's just you saying, with the Lord's help, I'm going to, if he'll enable me, I'm going to step up by faith and support missions on a monthly amount. And that allows us then to be able to partner with missionaries and just keep doing what we're already doing. That also takes commitment. Many of you already participate in that. But just because I wasn't here last week, I wanted to reinforce that. And if you need a faith promise card or you just want to jot it on a random piece of paper, that's fine too. But that it helps our deacons and myself as we start planning for uh, this next year for mission giving. All right, Genesis chapter 6 tonight. Let's pick up in verse number 1. And I've been excited about our study this evening for some time uh, with a concept I shared with you briefly in a communion service uh, earlier this year, but wanted to unpack it a bit more as God's been teaching me. Genesis chapter 3, let's begin in verse number 1, and uh, we'll bring this to how it applies to the Lord's table in just a moment. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, trees of the garden. But the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Verse 4, The serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Notice now verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, notice these next words, She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. We'll get to the text in just a moment in the New Testament, but what are the first words that Jesus says to institute the new covenant, and specifically the the commemoration of it through what we call communion or the Lord's table. What does he say? Take, eat. Take, eat. This is my body. So we're going to look at tonight how this idea of taking and eating or taking and drinking is really a recognition of the gospel story that's much bigger than just this moment 
uh, and what that means for us on an ongoing basis as a believer in Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us tonight. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how precise it is, both in the Old and New Testament, and how all of it connects um, through the person and work of Christ, the one that we will commemorate here in a few moments, his body and his blood that was given for us, that we might take and eat of it, and through that process, not of the symbols, but of what they symbolize, that we can see you undo all of our brokenness and fallenness and all the sorrow and guilt, and the list goes on and on, that began in Genesis 3. Thank you for what you did, how you followed through on your promises to Adam and Eve that we today are recipients of and that we can be if we've yet to make you our personal Savior, allow you to be that. Pray you bless this time as we study your word and as we partake of these elements that you have instituted for us as a local church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, One of the interesting things about being in the UK last week, last week and a half, was the way they say things. So they speak English like we do, but uh, they would say things a bit differently. And nowhere was this more evident than when we were like at a subway or something. We were trying to order your food. And I found myself ordering a tomato. I will have tomatoes on my sub. And uh, instead of pickles, it's gherkins. And the list goes on. And you just, I would just watch my nieces and nephew order things. And then I would try to mimic them, you know, accent and all. And they kind of, they knew that wasn't for real. But at least I said the right word or had the right uh, emphasis on the right syllable, if you will, just the right, the right reference there as it relates to the English. You know, one of the things I find interesting about God's Word is that God's Word is very precise. Um, I'm not talking about this evening that we have, uh, you know, we're reading into it like there's these symbols and different words and numbers. You can go crazy with that. I'm not saying we read into things, but God says things in a certain way for a reason. And nowhere is that more obvious than in what we're going to talk about tonight, that Jesus started by saying, take, eat. And it's almost like he's thumbing the gospel and its victory in the eye of the devil, and he's reminding us of what he has done for us that rolls back everything that began in the garden. So you have at the dawn of history, man taking and eating of that which was outside of God's will for him. And you have at the dawn of the new covenant, the church age, you have Jesus inaugurating that with the same exact words. That has to be more than a coincidence, right? So we're going to talk about tonight what that means for us, that take and eat is found in Genesis 3, but it's also found around that table as Jesus instituted what we're about to observe again um, this evening. And the question tonight is this, in a world filled with all kinds of menus and options of things we could take and eat, why would we keep coming back to this table? Why do we keep coming back to this table? What, what about this is better than everything that uh, the world and our flesh and even the devil himself can offer to us? So the, the proposition or key statement tonight is this, those who properly partake of communion or the Lord's table wisely choose between two tables. So we're going to talk about the table that we should push away from and the table that we should belly up to uh, as instructed in Genesis chapter 3. All right, so let's talk first of all about eating with the snake. Let's talk about eating at the, at the table with uh, the snake or with um, the devil. Um, I don't know what kind of boundaries you have with your pets. Um, we all have different lines we draw. Cottoner's just got a new dog. You still have the dog? Okay, good. I've been gone, so I just not want to assume that. Um, 
because I know how that is. Um, we got a dog and then gave it to my in-laws. So, and then we got another dog, and we didn't have other in-laws that would take it, so we're stuck with our dog. Um, but if you notice how people have different boundaries with their pets, um, one of the ones that we have, this is just us, if, you're, if this isn't you, okay, you do you, we'll do us. That's really not real spiritual. But anyway, with pets, we don't let our dog sit at the table with us, and we don't let him lick from our dirty dishes in the, in the dishwasher, all right? That's just us. Some of you have a line where you, you do eat with your dog and feed it. You know, it's in your lap as you're eating. Others of you, you haven't let an animal in your house in 50 years, okay? So we all have different lines on that. But here would be my question to you. Can you imagine eating dinner with snakes? Um, that's what we see in the text here uh, in a very literal sense. And I think we still find ourselves guilty of doing so in a way that does not make sense as believers. Now, thought tonight would be this. Meals are defined not just by what's on the menu, but the company in which we partake of that food, right? Like, I love eating and dining more just because of the company. It, it removes some barriers and mostly good inhibitions, you know, things that would maybe hinder conversation, just standing formally talking. And I think sometimes, if we're honest, we have the choice to eat with Jesus and we settle for lesser things and people. And I don't want to beat you down with that, but I just want to challenge you. Why would we settle for any table besides the table where Jesus is? So it's not as much the menu as it is the company that we keep uh, as we partake of the things that we feed upon. And that could be anything we look to for joy and peace and communion and fellowship. Um, there's some things we need to push away from. All right, so let's talk about what happened when man and woman decided to eat uh, with the snake. Number one, jot this down. These would be a few takeaways for us. We need to own, first of all, where we are feeding upon the snake's dinner conversation. Sticking with this analogy tonight, where we are feeding upon the snake's dinner conversation. What he says when we're at his table. And Satan says a lot here that will set us up for failure and disillusionment. Uh, in our walk uh, with the Lord. Notice a few things that the devil does here, beginning in verse number one. He says at the end of verse one, yea, hath God said. Number one, jot this down. Often we're feeding upon dinner conversation that questions God's word, questioning God's word. Um, as long as the mind holds to God's truth, Satan cannot win, right? He can't get the upper hand or lies. But the moment that we begin to entertain doubts and we begin to even question God's word, uh, we're feeding into the devil's agenda. We're giving him room and space uh, in our lives. And I want you to notice the sequence quickly in these verses of what Satan does. So he starts by questioning God's word. We see that in verse 1. Go down, if you will, to verse 4. We'll come back to the woman's responses in a moment. The serpent in verse 4 said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. So he questions God's word, lets that soak in for a moment, and then he actually denies God's word, right? God said this, the devil says that's not true. He denied God's word. Um, and, and we see that continue to be the message, right? Hell is mocked. Judgment is mocked. God being holy is marginalized in our day. And, and so denying uh, God's word. And then thirdly, look at verse 5. For God doth know 
that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Thirdly, Satan submits or substitutes with his own lies. So he questions God's word, then he denies God's word, and then in that gap, he substitutes it with his own lies. And that's the sequence he's been doing over and over and over again. I mentioned it before, in dinner, isn't the conversation, you know, the company, but the conversation between you and those that you care for um, is a key part of that, that time. It's fellowship, it's conversation. And when we belly up to the devils or the serpent or the snake's table, uh, we're often doing so as we listen to his words. And I would submit to you this, in these verses, what is Satan really questioning about God? Yes, his word, but what attribute of God? His goodness. And the idea is this, if you go sit with Jesus at his table, if you identify with God's will and you stay faithful, you're going to miss out on something. God's withholding from you. And and so that's the lie we begin to buy. You fight that ever in your life, and I'm trying to faithfully follow God, but what am I missing? Those subtle things, maybe I'm missing out on something, and often those little doubts and questions creep in when we give room for questioning God's word. Tozer said this, Jesus says, it is written. Satan says, is it, is, is it written? And we ought to be wise enough to know the difference. There's a, there is a chasm, a Grand Canyon kind of chasm theologically between it is written and is it written? And we ought to be able to identify that questioning of God's word and disassociate from it consistently as we look to God for his word that is our food. We can only move from the devil's table to the Lord's table when we are convinced that every word from God is always for our good. I love the verse in Job 23, 12, where Job says, "Um, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Feeding on God's word. Hey, I'm not going to doubt or question God's word. I need his word. My, My strength, my power, my joy comes only from it. All right, now go back to verse 2 and notice what happens on the part of the woman, on Eve, that often we find ourselves slipping into as well. Verse 2, and the woman said unto the serpent, all right, she's talking to a snake here. Um, in her innocence and na- naiveness, she, why not? We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest... You die. Number two, jot this down. Also changing God's word. So questioning God's word. Yea, hath God said. We see now some subtle changes in God's word. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 16, see if you see the difference between what Eve just said and what God said. Um, Verse 16, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. What word does Eve leave out in chapter 3? Freely right? Did you see that? Eve says, you shall not eat. God says, of every tree you may freely eat. You see that little shift there? And that's the kind of thing that causes us to move away from God and what he wants to feed and sustain us by and to begin to entertain these thoughts or these doubts. And so she omits the word freely. Back in verse 3, notice the beginning of the verse, she says, um, God says, here's what God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. If you go back to chapter 2, God never said that. Now, could Adam have possibly made that a standard by which he would ensure that his family would never eat of it? 
I'll, I'll acknowledge that's possible, but God never said, thou shalt not touch it. And it's interesting because sometimes our move away from God's word is we actually add stuff. I alluded to that this morning with tradition. We have to be very careful with that and, and, and elevating that to the same level as uh, God's word. So she omits freely. There's a bit of an attitude in that. She then adds to God's word this requirement of not touching it. All right, and then lastly, notice verse 3. This is one I had not noticed before. Verse 3, he says, or she says, quoting God, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. Um, Eve changes the word by making God's statement where he says, Ye shall surely die into lest ye die. And, and if you're not careful, you miss the subtlety of that. Why did God tell them not to eat of the tree? Because he didn't want them to die. God's warnings, listen to me, brethren, because the devil wants to convince you otherwise, his warnings are always preventative in nature. You catch how Eve is, I think it's there, I think it's in the text where she's almost, God wants to kill us, God wants to destroy us, which lays the foundation, the seed of doubt, which leads her to have dinner uh, with the snake and all the consequences we still experience. So God's version of that last statement is graciously preventative. Eve's version portrays him as wanting to gleefully uh, torture or to harm or to, to maim these who he has created. And so our view of God in his word uh, is where we must remain faithful. Um, I heard the other day someone said this, the church has lost its power. Do you agree that we've lost much of our power that we see in previous generations? Of believers, and here was his assessment. I think it's true. The church has lost its power because of its small compromises. Just little tweaks, little tweaks, and we tweak our way away from where is God's will for us. And so, to properly partake of the Lord's table, we must first align with his word. Nothing more, nothing less. We trust his word. In fact, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Paul is very careful in how he presents the Lord's table. We'll read from it in a moment. And he says in verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I have delivered unto you. The same night, the Lord Jesus. But he's very careful to say, what I'm giving you, I got verbatim from God. And so this Lord's table is not just a tradition. It's not something that over time man has created. We've got to be faithful to his word. And this is one way in which we practically uh, participate in that. All right, go back to our text now to verse 6. And notice a second aspect of having dinner with the snake that unfortunately we're often guilty of, even as God's people. Verse 6, and when the woman saw that the tree was good, so the devil feeds her some lies through verse 5. Now she sees the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Then she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Number two, so number one, own where you're feeding upon the snake's dinner conversation, what the devil wants you to listen to about God's word, what he wants you to, in place of it, listen to. Number two, own where you're feeding upon the snake's dinner optics is the word there, dinner optics. So what he says, but also what he shows us. Um, I joked about this morning, uh, or joked about, I guess, other, we can cry or joke about gas prices right now. Um, and I'm trying to laugh as much as I can or trying to process as best I can. But somebody was talking about, they said, I don't want to be a millionaire, 
They said, that's not my agenda in life. They said, here's, here's what I'd love to be. Just rich enough to stare off into the distance as I pump my gas. I just like to stare off instead of like watching as it just rackets up. And you maxed out whatever the pump limit, and then you have to put your card in again. Some of us do, some of you have commercial businesses and things. Wouldn't it be fun just to not worry about that like we used to do? Not to think about that? Our eyes are a key part of how we're wired. I referenced that this morning, that we control what we look at. Do you know that eating, physically speaking, I've talked to those who are in the culinary fields, is very little about the texture and the taste of food. So much of it is what it looks like, how it's presented. And if you figured out that the devil is really good at packaging what's a lousy lie in a way that looks even spiritual and logical, and so we have to own where we're not just listening to the wrong things, but we're seeing things through the wrong lens uh, as believers. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a restaurant and you see somebody order something and you were going to go a different, and you're like, whoa, that looks good. I'm going to get that too. Okay, not switch. I'm just going to add that. Do you know that grocery stores, they purposely put the junk food at eye level in those little impulse alleys that they force you to navigate before you get to the cash register? It's at eye level. It's not at kneecap level. It's not at your toe level. It's right there where you can see it with your eyes. Our eyes, uh, we eat with our eyes is the expression they use in the industry. And the same thing is true spiritually. We're seeing things, but we're not seeing them through the lens of God. We're seeing it through the lens of our flesh, the world, and the devil. All right, so let's talk about a couple things as it relates to that quickly. First of all, we have to be careful where we're looking at that which has an appealing appearance. The first point there underneath of that, that which is appealing in its appearance. And Eve here falls for this in three ways. She sees the tree was good for food. We see the threefold temptation here that later is referenced. That's the lust of the flesh. Notice also, not only is it that, it is also pleasant to the eyes. The lust of the eyes. You have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. And then notice thirdly, um, and that it is desired to make one wise. There is the uh, last source of temptation, which is the pride of life. In all three of these, over and over, the devil comes at us with the same approaches. Appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And then at the end of the verse that we read to begin with, she took and eat. And all of the sorrow and all of the pain and all the brokenness in our world started with those two words. She took and she ate. And in our lives this evening, much of what we're struggling and battling with could be attributed to those same words. Someone has said this, The wreckage of earth and a million billion graves attest that God is true and Satan is a liar. And history proves that this was a bad menu choice on the part of man. And so may we tonight not repeat history, may we learn from history in the ways that God has revealed in his word. So that which is appealing. All right, and then lastly, verse 7 in this section. Notice not only is it appealing, and the eyes of them both were open. So now they've partaken of the fruit. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Third, secondly, there's a shaming appearance. So it's appealing, but it also is a shaming appearance. And so we see the shame and the fear that comes. They sew together their own fig leaves, which could never hide or cloak or uh, cause them to ignore their failures. And we see the shame that they experience. 
I've noticed this about the devil, have you? He tries to, to entice us, then he enslaves us, and then lastly, how he keeps us there is he threatens to expose us. That's the sequence over and over. He entices, hey, I got your best in mind, this is going to help you. Then once we yield, he puts on the, the bracelets of captivity, he, he enslaves us. Uh, and then lastly, he holds us captive by threatening to expose us. And the only way to push back against that sequence, because we all buy this lie, we all swallow this at times, is to, of our own volition to just come into the light of God's mercy and grace, to own it. And that's what we're going to do in just a moment as we prepare to partake, willing to own where we fail and letting God's grace and mercy bring healing uh, in our lives. Our reflection tonight of even the Lord's table is not to make us feel guilty. Jesus chose to be our sacrifice. It's to make us grateful, grateful for what he's done for us. Instead of hiding in the weeds or the shrubs, God wants us to meet, wants to meet with us and remind us, yes, that we failed him and it required a sacrifice, but he longed to do it. He loved to do it. He loves us and, and to rejoice in that and to celebrate that. And so the devil tries to direct us in a shameful way. God wants us to come in celebration of his grace and mercy. All right, so to properly partake of the Lord's Supper, we must take our eyes off of the appeals of the world. That would be the flesh, the devil, and our own pride, and focus upon the one who made his love and grace tangible for us through his sacrificial body and blood. This is a picture of the gospel. It's something for us to feed on and to then let go of what we want to feed on in our flesh. All right, one last verse. Let's go to the New Testament. We'll move to our second point tonight. 1 Corinthians 10. Would you turn there for a moment? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 20. So we're talking about the negative here for a minute first, and then we'll get to the positive. But if we're going to come to the Lord's table, we have to choose to leave the table and the dinner that the snake, the devil, wants us to constantly partake of with him. Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 10 gives us this choice that we must make. Verse 20, 1 Corinthians 10, But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. I would that you should have fellowship, that you should have, I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of the devils, of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. And so you see back in verse 21 that we have to choose. And so I, I, I just, my challenge to you tonight and to myself as well is, let's just choose. Whose table are you going to sit at? Whose table are you sitting at? And would you choose to follow Christ and to feed on what he has given us instead of what the world offers? All right, number two, go back to, first, or to Genesis chapter 3, and let's go on in the story to verse number 8. And here's, I often hear this, maybe you have as well, Genesis 3 seems to end on a down note, but it really doesn't. In fact, the end of, end of Genesis chapter 3 is a really exciting section of Scripture because it gives us some promises, some promises that we are recipients of now post the cross in Calvary, that without these promises, we would still have uh, no hope. All right, so let's talk secondly about eating with the Savior. So if we're eating not with the devil and our flesh and the world and all that it offers, what is the choice that's left? It is to eat with the Savior. Um, have you noticed that as we age, we mellow? Um, we go from like 
you know, crack the whip mom or dad to my grandkids can have anything. And some of you are still fighting that, and I commend you for that. But it's just interesting how we, we mellow as we move through life, and things aren't quite as big a deal as maybe they once were, especially if they're our grandkids. Um, the other day, someone showed that, well, I'll give you the first. So the first caption was, my mom as a mom, and here was the statement. This is what defined this guy's mom. No toys in the living room. Okay, so that's my mom as a mom. This picture is my mom as a grandma, <laughs> inflatable in the living room, okay? So go from no toys in the living room to let's just have inflatables, okay, and all the fun and chaos. I mean, there's a fan hanging over where your grandkids are jumping, okay? That's what I saw in the picture. Here, here's the thought tonight. What's greater than being in the presence of the Savior, the one who offers himself to us and really offers freely, in many ways, a grace that's so radical and a mercy that's mind-boggling, and we get to enter into that uh, on a regular basis, not just positionally, but practically. And yet, here's what I see us doing. We're having dinner with everyone except Jesus, and we think me and Jesus are still good. Like, we're not, listen, we're not cracking this book. We're not on our knees. We're not, I know I'm preaching in the choir tonight on a Sunday evening, but I'm just saying, don't you see that in our day? And we think somehow I can do me and what I want with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and then I can still enter his presence now and then. I'm not feeding where he's at. I'm not fellowshipping regularly with him. And so it's not just about this evening. It's, it's what leads up to this evening. And what happens after this evening? Are we choosing to be found at his table? One author said it this way. This is convicting. We are not held back by what we don't have but by what we don't use. Can I read that again? We are not held back by what we don't have, but by what we don't use. We don't need anything else if we have Jesus. And yet we're not using, we're not tapping into everything he is and everything he wants to be in our lives. So the ceiling and the, and the limit, the restrictive realities of our lives is not what we don't have. I, I bet you could stand and list tonight things you wish you had that you don't have that would be a great help. And I could too. But if we have Jesus, we have everything we need to be satisfied and fulfilled and joyful. We don't need anybody. We don't need anything beyond him. And, and if that's true, then we're always going to be with him. We're going to be leaning and depending upon him in ways that sometimes, unfortunately, we're not. All right, let's talk about that quickly and how Adam and Eve had to learn this lesson. Number one, own where you're not feeding upon the Savior's dinner fellowship. So as we mentioned, the company that we keep when we eat is just as important as what's on the menu. Own where you're not feeding upon the Savior's dinner fellowship. Dining with Him leads to fellowship that's unmatchable. Go, if you would, to verse 8 and see how God pursues them. Listen, please do not see the end of this chapter as negative. This shows a God who is extremely pursuing and gracious and so good, even in the midst of man's failures. Verse 8, and, I, and they heard the voice of the Lord God, the same voice that they had questioned and denied and deflected. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Verse number nine, the Lord called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told thee thou wast naked? Naked, Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I have commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? 
All right, so the first thing we often avoid or why we avoid the Savior's fellowship is we avoid questioning fellowship. When we're with Jesus, he's going to question us, right? There's probing questions as he draws us closer. Jesus doesn't draw us closer by just attaboys or girls. He doesn't draw us closer just by ignoring and sweeping under the rug. He pursues us. And one of the ways he lovingly and tenderly does that is with very uncomfortable questions. And what we do with those questions will determine the level of fellowship and intimacy that's ongoing between us. And so in love and mercy, God comes searching for his fallen creatures. Where are you? We see that in verse uh, number 8. Um, verse 9, he says, where art thou? And then we see him ask two more questions in verse 11. Who told you you were naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree? It's interesting how straightforward God's questions are here because especially the last two, all they have to do is say yes or no. Like it's a very, there's no complexity. He's not playing games with them. He's just directly pursuing them. And I love that about our God that he doesn't beat around the bushes, we would say. He gets right to the point and he does it tenderly, but he does it directly and succinctly. This shows man's fallenness, but it also shows God's grace. And the thing that had been called into question, his goodness and his love, is reaffirmed by these questions. God loved them. He had their best in mind. He comes after them in this moment of failure. Uh, one of the funny things about being in the UK is the whole Americans are a bunch of rebels. We, you know, left the United Kingdom and, uh, and uh, we, were at, we were in Olney, England, which is the home of William Cooper, well-known poet, also wrote several hymns. Uh, Newton is there who wrote Amazing Grace. He was the, the vicar of the, t- the church that's there, uh, the Anglican church. And then it's also where the little Baptist church is in Olney is where William Carey was ordained in a ministry. And there was on the sign kind of the story. He tried to preach once and it was a total failure. They said, let's wait a year and maybe we'll try again. So they gave him a year and he did a little better. And over time, he eventually was ordained and went on to do all that he did as father of modern missions. But there was this little museum to Newton and to Cooper that we visited and uh, in the garden that was there outside the back of this, this house, this street front house, was the garden in which several of those hymns that they're known for were written. And beautiful little gardens, this little, little house that looked like it was going to fall over is where they would go in and they would pin the words to these hymns. Just really neat little original site. But there was a guide there, and he said to me, he said, where are you guys from? And he knew where we were from. He just was making it small. I said, I'm from America. And he just kind of dry humor. Brits are known for their, their dry humor. He, with a straight face, with a little bit of a smirk, he said, you know, it, it's not too late for you to change your mind. You know, you guys can come back into the fold, was basically the language. And we kind of had a little tongue-in-cheek give and take there in that moment of conversation. Isn't it amazing that God says to them here, it's not too late, you can change your mind? That's really what we're about to observe again. You can still come back for the umpteenth time. The thing you keep tripping up on and stubbing your toe and failing the Lord on, you can still come back. And so we see that in the midst of this questioning, God is pursuing us. Here's my question. Are we avoiding it? Sometimes we'd rather be comfortable than to be close to Jesus. And I have found those probing questions are not the antithesis, but the means to sweeter fellowship with Jesus. Let a man examine himself. Does that not, is that not a part of this evening? We must choose to yield to that searchlight. We must submit to that examination. 
Here's why we like the dinner with the snake. Because he doesn't ask those kind of questions. He questions God. Instead of God questioning us. And I will tell you, the first option will never lead us into a good place. The second leads to our continual growth, spiritual sanctification in our relationship with the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and then let him eat of this bread and drink of this cup. All right, verse 12. And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to me, typical man move here, right? Blame game. This is what we do. Um, The woman (laughs) whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me the tree and I did eat. And I don't, this is just me, but do you think maybe he got a look when he said that? I think so, okay? That's just my own theory on this. Um, not from personal experience, but I've observed in others. Um, the look, okay? The look. So he blames the woman. Uh, verse 13, the Lord God said, the woman, what is it that thou hast done? The woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. So we see the blame game going on. Uh, Number two, so we avoid questioning fellowship. Number two, we excuse confrontational fellowship. So we excuse things that God is confronting. He questions, and then he confronts. And when called into account by God, we see each of these sinners excuse themselves and blame another. Key point tonight. We can never eat with Jesus both in this life or eternity until we take personal responsibility for our failures. The Lord's table is not the place to play the victim. Not saying you haven't been victimized, but this is a place to own your personal responsibility. He took responsibility for our sin. It's our responsibility to go to Him with that sin and ask for forgiveness and cleansing and restoration. We will never be able to eat with Jesus until we take personal responsibility. I think even in eternity, we'll still know, will we not? We don't deserve to be there. Or at the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, do you think any of us will sit back and say, man, I'm just, I, I knew I was supposed to be here. No, it'll be the exact opposite. Why am I here? Why am I here? And so owning personal responsibility leads to that intimacy and a dinner conversation, not just in this life, but eternity. May we be willing to own that. All right, verse 14, the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. That's interesting, the belly, it talks about those who are the enemy of the cross, that their God is their belly. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. It's interesting that the Lord curses the serpent, but then he switches to the devil himself. And we see that being alluded to here in verse 15. That's not just the snake, but it is the devil himself who is being confronted. This verse is known in theological circles as the proto-evangelium, which means the first mention of the gospel, proto-evangelium. And so we see here the promise, it's the first gospel, it predicts the the hostility between the seed of the woman, man, and the devil himself, and then the seed of the woman, there's the reference of the virgin birth, which is Jesus Christ, he will crush the head of the serpent, while his own heels uh, will be bruised, and we'll commemorate that this evening in our observance. But we see ultimate victory over uh, the devil himself, promised Uh, here between God and man. Note the kindness of God giving the promise 
before he fully gives the punishment to man. Isn't that interesting? So before he gets to the consequences for Eve and Adam, he front loads it with his promise. Isn't that like God to do that? He's going to get to the hard part in just a moment for them personally, but before he does so, he says, listen, before I get to that, I just want to remind you, I'm still good, and I'm still going to work, and this is going to be okay. And I love that about our God, that he gives the promise before he gives the rebuke and the consequence that their sin uh, merited. And so may be willing to trust God even when we fail, that he always has our best in mind, he will deliver no matter what anyone else says or thinks or feels, including you, you, there is no place that is better for you when you fail than to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what's amazing about our table that we're about to observe is that we come as failures. And the best place for us is to be with the one we failed because he alone is merciful. He alone is able to forgive and cleanse. Don't believe the lie that God's frustrated with you. He's given up on you. Uh, Do not do that. He welcomes you to the table through his son, Jesus Christ. The one, by the way, who crushes everything that's against you, everything that will ruin you, including what's inside of you. He's the one that frees us from all uh, that we navigate on that front. All right, let's end tonight in verse 20. Would you go down there for a moment? We won't get into the specific curses that are given or the consequences given in verse 16 through 19. Eve is going to have pain in childbirth. Adam's going to have to work. Uh, the ground with greater resistance and toil. Verse 20, I love this part of the text, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Number two, and lastly, own where you're not feeding upon the, sin, the Savior's dinner provision. So dinner fellowship, number two, dinner provision. Um, have you noticed that at times it feels like our government doesn't have our best in mind? Have you noticed that? Uh, maybe that's the understatement of, of your lifetime. Just the other day, a friend of mine sent this to me that our government, and I verified this, our government currently has, they have all kinds of things they have in storage for whatever emergencies coming up. But right now, our government has 1.4 billion pounds of cheese in storage. Four, I don't know, okay? But I like cheese, so that's good. Well, at least I know we're safe on that front amongst others. But we have 1.4 billion pounds of cheese in storage, some emergency storage backup. Maybe it's more buying it than using it. Some of those things tend to happen. Can I just ask you tonight, aren't you grateful that Jesus, when he sets the table for us, that he provides exactly what we need? Like, there's a lot of things that we could, we could commemorate about even God tonight, but the main things that we need are the things that we're going to remember We need what the body and blood of Jesus alone can deliver. He provides for us like no other. Um, And in our world, there's something called hunger strikes. Have you heard of this? Where someone, they're in defiance, and so they refuse to eat. May we not be found in that category as it relates to what Jesus has provided for us. All right, two things as we finish. Number one, we ought to have trust in the promised provision. So a trusting in the promised provision provision. Are we willing to trust in what God has promised to deliver? And in verse 20, you see the promise, as I mentioned, this proto-evangelium, the, the first mention or promise of the gospel. How do we know that Adam believed this promise? I think verse 20 reveals it to us. Did you notice that? Verse 20, Adam called the, his wife's name Eve. What does that mean? She is the mother of all what? 
living. Not dying or dead and gone, but living. Showing by naming his wife a belief in the promise that had just been given back in verse number 15. A belief in this good news that one day God would provide the sacrifice. And so we see this deliverance promised and Adam was willing to believe it. All right, go down to verse 22. We'll come back to verse 21 in a moment. The Lord God said, behold, the man has become like as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put it forth his hand, take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man. He placed at the east of the gates of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And so you see that this promise required them to be uh, expelled from the garden. It's one thing to trust God when there's the quick fix. It's another thing when it feels like it's moving the wrong direction. And Adam and Eve had to trust God even when he expelled them from the garden. Now, why did he expel them? Because if they had not, they would have lived forever, including their descendant who had to die his body and blood so that we could have salvation. Death itself, listen to me, is precious in God's sight. The death of his saints, not just because of the reunion, but because death is the means to everything we've yet to experience with him. And so this death was a gift and trusting that God was providing in his time and way uh, what is needed. I think one of the greatest gifts of the Lord's Supper is its futuristic tone. Without the Lord's table, I can't make sense of the future. Without, without the Lord's table, I get stuck in the present with all of its trends and challenges. And so the Lord's table frees me to believe anew and afresh and to focus anew and afresh upon the future that God has promised. Really, it's a futuristic meal. Because why? We do it until He comes. And then He shows up and I sit down and shut up and anybody else who observe, officiates and He's the one He's the one serving. He's the one serving it up. And we see him and sense him. And our minds just race. Our hearts race as we consider how glorious that moment will be. But we must trust in his promises until they are fulfilled. I see a lot of hand-to-mouth existence. We're just in the present, tense only. Hand-to-mouth. Instead of having hope beyond the next moment and believing there's more. We're just existing or we need to live with vision. All right, last to go back to verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Lastly, we need to wear the sacrificial provision. So trust in the promised provision and then wear the sacrificial provision. We must put on what God has provided for us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Garments in the Bible regularly refer to salvation. You think of the, the lost son, right? The parable of the, the prodigal son, and, and he put on new clothes. And this idea of reconciliation, the garments of self-righteousness and good works are filthy rags in Isaiah 64. So this idea of garment and salvation tend to track together. And so God clothes them. This confirms their salvation, a provision of the sacrificial lamb, a picture of the ultimate lamb, Jesus Christ. It's interesting because prior to the Lord's table, communion, what was the featured element in the Passover? It was the what? The lamb. But now, as Jesus sits there with his disciples, the lamb is not on the table, the lamb is at the table. 
and, and showing them what he's about to do. And so this sacrifice of not just the lamb in Genesis 3, but in our day as a result of the cross of Jesus Christ, we have the shed blood of the lamb which clothes us, which saves us, and which delivers us from this body of sin. So may we be willing to sit down to what Christ provides for us, putting aside what the world offers and feeding upon his provision. All right, let's end tonight in 1 Corinthians 11. Would you turn there for a moment? And then we'll pray and give you a moment to process and to prepare for the Lord's table tonight. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 24. Now we bring these two words into the New Testament. Paul says in verse 23... For that, for I, uh, I have received the Lord that which also I have delivered unto you. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, notice these two words, take, eat. Take, eat. I was reading the other day, an author said this of communion with God. And communion in this sense, communion in other senses. But he said this, I think this is great. Communion with God makes bitter things sweet and massive things light. Bitter things sweet, massive things light. And isn't that really what happens? We're talking about death and shed blood and all that goes with that, but it takes the bitter experience of our own suffering and sweetens it with the presence and the sacrifice of Christ. It takes the massive weight of our sin and it gives a lightness to it that cannot be found anywhere else. Just a thought as we close tonight, there is no lie that we have swallowed hook, line, and sinker. There's no failure that we've done. The worst thing we can think of that Jesus cannot undo. And when we take and eat in the wrong way, at the wrong table, Jesus just says to us anew and afresh tonight, take eat. Take eat. You took eat, now let's take eat of me. Take eat of what I provide. Let's restore, let's renew, let's bring you back into fellowship with me. Here's the question, and we'll pray. We allow God to help you push away from the snake's table and to fully pull up a chair, again, for the umpteenth time, to the Savior's table through the finished work of Christ. Lord, thank you tonight for your goodness.